This is Anthony Arino, and you're listening to In the Arena. Deb Calvert is the president of People First Productivity Solutions. She's an instructor of sales development principles at UC Berkeley, and she's also the author of a new book called Stop Selling, Start Leading. I invited Deb into the arena to talk about the research that went into the book because the leadership concepts that are described in the book are important for sales today, and that was why leadership was the final chapter in my first book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. This is Deb Calvert in the arena. Deb Calvert, how are you? Outstanding, Anthony. It's always a pleasure talking to you. You too. I want to talk about your new book, and I want to give people a flavor of what's in the book. But before we get there, I want to ask a couple questions. I want to talk to you about the research, because you didn't do this book alone, and you're working with people who have a very big reputation in the world of leadership and the book is called Stop Selling and Start Leading, How to Make Extraordinary Sales Happen. And this is a book that was based on research that was done. And I always want to start there with what was the research that you did? And tell me how you did that. Yeah, there are three layers of research. So this is a long answer. The first layer of research is the 36 years of research done by my co-authors, Jim Kuzis and Barry Posner. They are known for the body of work called the Leadership Challenge, and they've worked in virtually every country in the world. They've had over 5 million people participate in their research, so this is pretty substantial. And from their research, we have an evidence-based framework of leadership, well-validated, and what we know is that there are 30 behaviors that will cause people to more willingly choose to follow someone who is leading them. So, you know, I kind of I kind of liked that. I've been working with that myself for a couple of decades as a certified master of the leadership challenge. I was really steeped in that research, and that's when it kind of hit me. I just wondered one day what would happen if sellers adopted these 30 behaviors. And I posed that question to Jim and Barry. They liked that question, and we embarked on the next phase of leadership, which was through Santa Clara University, we had a panel study, extensive study with 530 B2B buyers representing a, a cross-section of every sort of sort you could probably imagine. And we asked them, these 530 B2B buyers, we asked them about the current level in terms of frequency. How often do you see the sellers you already choose to do business with exhibiting each of these 30 behaviors? We started there to get a baseline. And then we asked them, what would be the ideal frequency? How often would you like to see these behaviors from the sellers you do business with? And in all cases, unanimously, that ideal frequency was significantly higher than the current frequency. That was interesting. So we then tried to find out what would happen if, if sellers were exhibiting these behaviors more frequently, would you be more likely to meet with them? Would you be more likely to buy from them? 
And buyers emphatically said yes to both questions. Their comments affirmed that. And the other thing we did with them was we asked them to rank order the behaviors, which was a whole separate piece. So we thought this was very, very telling, but we also wanted to see it from the other side. Phase three of the research was to then collect stories. We asked sellers to contribute stories about their own personal best in selling. We didn't tell them anything else, Anthony. We just asked that very big, broad question. And then we called through the stories. And sure enough, in virtually every story, over 500 stories, those behaviors were apparent. Those very same behaviors were apparent when sellers were making extraordinary sales. When they were at their personal best, they were demonstrating leadership. But they didn't know it. Almost none of the sellers attributed their success to those behaviors. So it's been fascinating. This has gone on for a couple of years now, just trying to really understand what it looks like to lead instead of just the stereotypical selling behaviors. It's the last chapter in my book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. And it's because you do have to be a leader to be effective in sales. I want to talk about the research for just another minute. What's interesting to me about what you've shared here, this are 530 buyers that are talking about the people that already created a preference to work with them. So these sellers have already won the business. And then when they ranked the frequency that they exhibited these behaviors, there was still a gap between the way that the seller's behaving now and the frequency with which the buyer would want to see that. You're absolutely right. So what that tells us all is that if you're not already doing some of this, you're behind the curve. You're not being chosen in part because you're not exhibiting even at baseline. And there's a big opportunity for any of us to to leapfrog than the, the ones who have started doing this or for any of us to improve. And if you are doing it, you should probably be doing more of it. Exactly, because it's all about frequency, which I kind of like, right? Behaviors are easy. It's, it's a choice. Do I do this? Do I do it more often? There aren't extreme skills associated here. It's about frequency and you build the quality as you try these things and do them more often. And then you went out and you got seller's stories and you did this without any prompt for them. So there was no bucketing of this. And we're going to talk about modeling the way in a minute, but they weren't responding to a prompt as to like, did you do this? They were just saying, when I'm at my very best, this is who I am. And when right. I have my very best outcomes with clients, this is why it's happening. And then they, they, they came up with their narrative and their story about why that worked. Exactly. The question went like this. Tell us about your own personal best in selling. What were you doing when you made that sale? That's all they got. Okay. That's not much of a prompt for people. So that's a wide, I'm sure you're getting a very, very wide discrepancy between the responses. But still, with that said, there's 500 and you end up with the anecdotes and the vignettes that actually prove that these attributes and these characteristics and these interactions that they're having fit into a model that we can look at to say, these are the things that sellers need to be doing now to create a preference and at a frequency that's far greater than they may imagine. Exactly. And that was the hardest part of writing this book. Picking, we only have about 28 stories in the book from sellers. We had to manage the length somehow, but there were over 500 and almost every one of them was fantastic and a direct hit. To leadership behaviors. So we could have used, we could have picked out of a hat and probably found any of those stories could be applicable. Let me ask you what you learned that you think goes against 
what salespeople are presently being taught or trained or told to do? What are some of the things that you think are still hanging on that go against the attributes that we're getting ready to talk about? Now, hang on with me because this is going to sound a little bit strange at the beginning, but the thing that sellers attributed their success to, because you tend to do that when you tell a story, right? what they attributed their success to was being persistent. And yet in our buyer side research and all the comments that we that we found, not one single buyer ever said, I bought from that seller because he or she was so persistent. They attributed it to leadership behaviors. Now, the same leadership behaviors show up in sellers' stories, but they conclude it happened because I was persistent. So what this means, in my mind, is that persistence alone is not what we're aiming for. Persistence counts. It's very important. But what is it that you're doing as you are persisting? Mm -hmm. That's the magic that we're not quite getting to that that sellers aren't understanding. So the, the context is missing. Absolutely. So what what is the leadership behavior that falls under the persistence? And maybe we'll just talk about three or four of these together. It's wanna, any of them. Yeah, any of the leadership behaviors, yes. Okay, so let's go through a few of these. And I want to talk, I think I just want to do this in sort of the order that they show up in the book for one particular reason. I don't want to go through all five of them, but the the model is worth reviewing and having a conversation about. And when people go and pick this book up, I think what they're going to find let me just say this after reading the book. They're not going to find something that they go, wait, I can't do that. They're going to find something that they go, I get this, I understand. And the stories are going to give you the ability, I think, to think about how I transfer it into what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Start, if you don't mind, talking about modeling the way and what that means sellers should be doing differently and what they should be thinking about. Okay. So to clarify, we're talking about the five practices of exemplary leadership. I've been talking so far about behaviors, and I said there were 30. Yeah, That's because there are six behaviors under each practice. So now we're talking higher level. So to model the way means that you know who you are. You know what you stand for. You've got your own internal values worked out. And then you align your actions with your values. Your values are your internal compass, and they help you to be consistent and credible in what you do, and you show up in a way that that is believable. And the reason this matters so much is that our buyers, they'll never believe our message until they believe in the messenger. That's us. We've got to earn their trust and demonstrate our credibility. And as we all know, that's difficult to do at the very beginning of a relationship because buyers have the natural resistance, right? They've got their guard up because of the stereotypes, negative stereotypes around selling. So what we would want to encourage sellers to do, here's the very simplest, immediate way that you demonstrate credibility and build trustworthiness. And I pronounce it this way, DeWYSIWYD. And that's just an acronym, D-W-Y-W-I-S-D. It stands for do what you say you will do. And it really is that simple. Just do what you said you were going to do. Did you get any kind of insight as to what salespeople do that prevents somebody from choosing them in your research? Absolutely. Yeah. And what what is the opposite of this? And why, why do salespeople struggle here? So 33% of the comments, and this is a lot of comments from 530 B2B buyers, and they commented on virtually all these behaviors, but 33% of the comments, nonetheless, had something to do with seller credibility And it is the 
price of admission. When you're first engaging with a buyer, they don't have a lot to go on. So they're gauging your credibility and your trustworthiness based mostly on this thing I call the WYSIWYG. That means that we have this extremely high standard. And if we say we're going to call at nine o'clock tomorrow morning, and then we don't call until, oh, you know, 10, 10, we might be out. And that sounds harsh, but buyers have nothing else to, to gauge at this point. And so they're holding us accountable to this very high standard of do we come through with what we promised? I think that's so interesting because I've written about this and I've noticed that as human beings, we make commitments that we didn't even recognize that we made. And we say something like, Deb, I'll send you that white paper when I get back to the office. And you just made a commitment, and now you're going to be measured against that commitment. Can I rely on you to do the things that you say you're going to do? And if it takes three, four weeks before you remember that you need to send that to me, then I now have an understanding of what it's going to be like to work with you in the future, right? That's exactly right. It's, our it's word is our bond. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so interesting to me that you got the feedback because, I mean, having uh, 33% of people say the challenge that we have working with the salesperson is that they don't look like the kind of person that I want on my team because they're not credible, they're not reliable, they're, they're signaling to me that there's some trust issue that I should have with them. And I'm not sure that we spend enough time helping people understand that. Like when you say anything, you're now being held accountable for that, whether you meant to be or not. I mean, the, the off comment, like I'm, I'm going to send you this case study or I'll follow up with you and then not doing it. That's now that person's experience of you. Exactly. They feel disappointed and you thought it was very casual. It was, you were just floating yeah. it out there. But if we commit it, We've got to write it down or do whatever it takes for you to remember and follow through. And when you do, you'll be differentiated because not everyone else is taking these things so seriously. Did the research that you did show anything about the seller's self-orientation? Yes. A comment that I saw very frequently was, when I know a seller has my best interests at heart, and I don't typically use that phrase, so I was surprised to see it showing up over and over again. But buyers want us to somehow demonstrate that we have their best interest at heart. And places where I saw a contrast where they did not feel that way had a lot to do with not listening well, not having two-way dialogue, not being able to take the time to really understand before pouncing on the first <laughs> glimpse of a need. Yeah. I mean, I think this is an interesting point. And I'm in book three right now, and I'm, I'm just writing about how much discovery has changed. And, you know, most of us are going through discovery just trying to find the pain point so we can respond to it. And we're not there yet. We're way out ahead because we know where we think we're taking someone. And that jumping forward means I'm more concerned about what I want than what you want. Yes. Now, we're leaping ahead to a different practice, but I'll, I'd like to talk about discovery if you want to go there right away. I want to go through a number of these, but then we'll talk about a couple other things. This is the one that I think probably is the most difficult in execution. I want to talk about inspiring a shared vision. And I think it's exactly right. I think that you do have to have a vision of the future. But I think that there's this hesitancy on salespeople. And here's the way it sounds in what I hear. And I'll be interested to hear what your feedback is on this and what your experience is. Look, the client knows their business better than I do. 
And I don't want to go in there and share this vision of the future with them. And I don't want to have this conversation with them because they're going to think that it's arrogant and that I'm pretending like I know more than they do about their business. So talk about the shared vision and getting the buy-in on imagining what the future of that client looks for. And I, I think that this is exactly right. And I think it's what we're supposed to be doing. And when we're at our best, we are helping vision of solutions and a vision of future. But I find that it's difficult for people. You know, when I hear sellers say what you just said, I actually see a glimmer there that's very positive because that's a seller who recognizes that they can't zoom in with their own vision that they've created unilaterally somehow leaving the buyer out of the process. The key word in this phrase is is shared. We're going to inspire. That means we're going to breathe life into a vision, an ideal of the future. We're going to breathe that life into that ideal, but it's going to be shared. It's mine and yours. And it's okay if it starts with yours. I have something I can do to enhance yours, to magnify yours, to get you to yours faster, sooner, better, but it's not a bad thing. If I start with where you are and where you want to go, but I have to understand that very well so that I can then share in and you too can share in and participate in in crafting that vision and mobilizing everyone to work toward it. Did the research speak to, in my world, I would call this a collaborative conversation. And I think we show up and we say, look, this is potentially possible for you. What does it look like in your world? And then they say, you know what? It doesn't look exactly like that. Let me share with you how we're looking at it. And then we end up figuring out what we can do together. And that to me is a collaboration that we tend to have. Does that word show up in your research? It sure does. Shows up in the same place, interestingly enough, as discovery does. Those two things go hand in hand. And where do they show up? They show up under enable others to act. Okay. Good. Then let's hold that one for just a minute. And and let's talk about the shared vision and share, if you don't mind, what is it that the salesperson is doing and what is it that the buyer likes about this? And that's the heart of the research that's interesting to me is that this is what buyers said, we like this. Okay. So sellers prioritize, inspire a shared vision at the top more than they prioritize any of these other practices. But buyers, even though they like all of these behaviors, they want all of these things to happen. For them, this was the least important, still important, but the other four practices in buyers' minds ranked above inspire a shared vision. And the comments tell us that they don't want someone to try to inspire a shared vision with them, nor to challenge them, which we'll come to next, until they have established credibility through Model the Way and until they have enabled and and encouraged, which we'll come to. That's like for sellers, though, it's a big surprise when I talk to groups of sellers because they do jump straight to inspire a shared vision without perhaps having enough information, enough collaboration, and enough that's been shared yet to really go there first. What buyers do want at the right time is they want someone to be able to help them imagine the possibilities beyond the ones that they already know and thought of. They want someone to help them think of those possibilities in exciting and ennobling ways, ennoble meaning to make important and worthy. They want someone to help them get that sort of burning passion for those that vision so that they're strengthened and emboldened to keep working for it. Because let's face it, sometimes getting to a vision, an ideal state, there's going to be some struggle along the way to get there. It, it just doesn't be. happen. Yeah, you know, poof, about the thing, I'm there. It doesn't work like that. 
What I am picking up from this, Deb, is that if I come in and I, even if my vision is right, and even if I do have to challenge what you're doing right now, if I haven't modeled the way, if I don't have the trust in the relationship to do this, then it's a bridge too far. Yes. We've gone too far too fast. And there's something that comes before the, the ability to do this. And that means that there has to be some underlying trust in the relationship for me to look at this vision with you. Yes. And all of us, we're buyers too. We can relate to this. And sometimes the stereotypical salesperson is absolutely right about the vision, but goes overboard and it doesn't sound authentic or it doesn't sound credible because they're well-founded, well-intended enthusiasm. It's bubbling over, but it starts to sound just like blue sky. We've <laughs> had those that. experiences. <laughs> I've yes. seen that. Let's move through a couple of the other ones here. Tell me about challenge the process. Challenge the process. This set of behaviors, it means to be able to look beyond the status quo, to not be complacent in the status quo, to be asking the questions, what's new, what's next, to have outside. That means looking beyond what we already know and looking to other places outside our own industry or our own experiences. It means to be willing to take some risks and even to fail forward and learn and adjust and try again. And buyers want that in us. They want us as sellers to do that. And they also want us to help them do it because that's where innovation comes from. Tell me how that was framed from the buyer's viewpoint. Did they say we want them to challenge the process? What, what words did they use to describe this? So yes, these words challenge the process. Those don't show up in the buyer study nor the seller side. That is just the umbrella headline, the practice right. And we ask them about the behaviors underneath. So the behaviors are the frame. And we would say things like, how frequently do the sellers you work with and how, what would be the ideal frequency of and what would happen if. And those behaviors are things like willing to experiment and take risks, even if it means failing. Hmm. And, and buyers want that. They want it. They want all of these things more frequently. That's interesting to me because I, I wouldn't have suspected that they used the word challenge, but the way that it was framed up to them looked more like experimentation and innovation and risk-taking and maybe shared learning. And learning is part of it, right? So that is a specific behavior, ability to learn when mistakes are made and to adjust and, and go forward. There's, there's absolutely this piece of it embedded. We're giving people a really good view of what's in the book with leaving out the stories, but the stories that support these concepts are in the book. And I will tell you my opinion is when you read the stories, you'll understand how actionable all of this is. It's mm -hmm. very, very actionable when you read it. It's it's not something that you're going to say, this is beyond something that I can do. You will get it immediately. Let's go to ennobling others to act and tell me why that matters most to buyers. Yeah. So enable others to act rated at the top, which surprises every group of sellers that I ever talk to. It's just not something we typically think about as being part of our job. It sounds more like the kind of thing that the senior management in your company is supposed to be doing for you. Buyers want this. In fact, the number one behavior comes from this practice, and so do a couple of others in the top 10 behaviors. Number one behavior out of all of them that buyers want is they want us to answer their questions in a relevant way and a way that's timely. That enables them, that helps them to get information they want so they can make decisions and take actions moving forward. 
Unfortunately, we don't always do that. In, in fact, we hear messages like, don't ever answer the price question until you have value firmly established. Terrible idea. <laughs> well, <laughs> we have to balance here, right? That sometimes the, that price question is premature, but we at least have to dignify because that's another one of these behaviors to show dignity and respect. We have to dignify the buyer, the fact that they asked, the fact that that's important to them, and now we know it's something that, that they value, and to have a conversation. So uh, the second highest rating behavior out of this practice is what takes us straight to discovery and collaboration. Buyers want a two-way dialogue. They do not want a diagnostic-style old-school needs assessment. Yeah. They want a dialogic one. It's These are open questions that invite participation. I love the question that you just asked a moment ago, which was, how does this work for you? Because as a buyer, I see myself in it. In fact, I insert myself in it. I start to imagine myself in it. And that's where the buy-in is starting to build because you've invited me in and we're now collaborating toward getting to where you want to go. And how would we do that? Does the research speak to an idea that I see falling under this particular category that we're talking about, enable others to act? I think consensus building is more and more important. And I think that this, we're going to bring more people into this conversation because we need their one consent to go along with this when we're building consensus. But even more than that is maybe because we need to make sure that everybody can make the change that we're making. And when we leave them out of the process and then later on expect them to, one, go along with us and then two, execute against it, it just doesn't feel right. And I think it's why leaders struggle so much with change initiatives is that so many people are left out of the process. Is there anything that shows that buyers recognize that? There absolutely is. Buyers were pretty assertive in saying, Sellers should not be talking just to the person who they see as the, the chief decision maker because they don't treat gatekeepers well, or they are rude to receptionist, or they only look at me across the table even when there are four other people around the table. They, they told us these kinds of stories. And we're missing the mark if we think there is any longer just one decision maker. There certainly are other decision influencers in almost every kind of purchase these days. What are the needs of all those constituent groups and how can we help them to see themselves? And, and if we're not meeting the needs of everyone who will be affected by our purchase, that leaves too many places where there can be vetoes that we never know about behind the scenes. Yeah, but you get a no decision because there are people who were left out for so long that they can't possibly go along with you. I mean, they, right. you're so far ahead of them. Let's talk about the last big category here before we send people out to buy the book, encourage the heart. You talk about meaningful connections between the seller and the buyer in a world right now where everything is going transactional, Deb. Everybody thinks that we're going to automate everything and robots are going to replace human mm -hmm. interactions. And then you're actually using the word encourage the heart and you're using it not only about leaders, which people would more easily accept, but I'm just thinking about the response to this, like when I gave my first book to the first publisher that asked for it, and they're like, why on earth do you have a chapter on caring? Hmm. <laughs> and I had to say, apparently, you, you've never sold before, right? And the editor said, no, I've never sold. And I said, well, I've never published a book, but you're going to have to trust me on this. Tell me more about that one and what buyers said about yeah. the relationship with the sellers. Okay. So there's three really big things here I, I think sellers need to know. First, let me give you a visual. So encourage 
means to pour courage into. And where are we going to pour that courage? We're going to pour it right into someone's heart, into their emotions, because we all make decisions emotionally first. We justify them later with logic. Human-to-human interactions are founded in emotions. We're not going to escape this emotional heart piece of it. It's important. And people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. We've got to care. So why do I need to pour courage into my buyers? A lot of reasons, but chiefly this one. Once we have made a proposal or once we have asked them to go back and ask for a meeting with with others, when we're asking our buyer to do something on our behalf, we think that that's all there is to it. But inside their own organization, that's when the real work begins. See, they have to convince other people. They have to say no to something else that they have been doing or might otherwise do. They have to go fight for the funding for what we're asking them to do. They have to put their neck on the chopping block because what if they're making a mistake for this thing that they're advocating for and we let them down and make them look bad? They need courage to be able to get this all the way through, whatever gauntlet they're running, to be able to get the purchase made. And we can't think about encouragement as just, hey, thank you very much at the end of the sale when the thing's closing up. We need to think about how we all, and buyers included, we need courage for every one of those steps along the way throughout the process. Encouragement is praise, recognition, appreciation, celebration, and our buyers want that. Third point I'd like to make here, Anthony, is that we did segment all of the the different kinds of buyers. And in the entire study, there was only one place where there was any discrepancy. And that sole discrepancy was around this practice, encourage the heart. Buyers 30 and younger value this one more than buyers of other age groups. In fact, they, they ranked it wow. number two. So it's, it's really important, especially if you're working with millennial buyers and on into the future, we'll but, all be working more and more with Deb, millennial we're, buyers. All we're hearing is that they're not like us and they don't care about relationships and they're only going to buy from you on their app. Mm-hmm. But Not under true. 30, you're getting exactly the opposite response from the actual buyer than what is being touted as a, a universal truth around, you know, millennials and younger. Yep. That's a very interesting thing. And I do believe that we're going to be human for a long time. And maybe there's something underneath there that would be worth looking at at some point. That's a very interesting observation. Yeah, Forrester has taken this and running with it. They've written a few papers around this this very thing using our research. So I know we're going to hear more about this. That's amazing. The book is called Stop Selling and Start Leading, How to Make Extraordinary Sales Happen. And you are able to buy this book at Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. And where do you, we want people to go to find you, Deb? If you want to find more information about the book, the webpage is StopSellingStartLeading.com. If you want to talk to me, I would love to hear from you. I'm People First PS, that stands for Productivity Solutions, People First PS on all social media, Deb Calvert on LinkedIn. You'll find me. I'm going to find you at Outbound. That's right. I can't wait to be there at Outbound. What what is your training session? Oh, we're going to be talking about some easy ways, some little tips and tricks to be able to do better prospecting work and to reach the people you want to reach by making good connections with them. This is going to be awesome. Thank you so much for joining me here. And we'll send everybody out to pick the book up and uh, look forward to seeing you in Atlanta. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for this and also for everything you're doing. I can't wait to read your next book. 
That was Deb Calvert, and you can find her at peoplefirstps.com. You'll find that in the show notes. You'll find the book Stop Selling, Start Leading on Amazon.com and at booksellers across the United States and elsewhere. You'll find me, Anthony Anarino, at thesalesblog.com, where I blog daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. If this has been helpful for you, do consider giving us a review on iTunes so we can share this with more people. And until next time, I'll see you back here in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.